Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week on our panel, we have Francois Bertrand. Hello. Ben Wilson. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick shout out about devinfluencers.com slash podcast. So that's just me talking about how to be an influencer and grow your reach. This week, we're going to be talking about, well, it's kind of interesting because we were talking before the show and we, we kind of meandered our way through, but so I'm not really sure what to call it, but we asked Ben what he thought was coming down the, the, the pipe, so to speak, in the machine learning world. And Ben, you were telling us that it's, it's hard to predict because it's moving so fast. And then we started talking about why. And you, you kind of want to summarize what we were talking about before the show, and then we kind of pick things up from there. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty about what the future of standardization in ML is going to be. I like to think of it as we're in the place right now in the applications of ML and large-scale data science where the software development industry was back in the early 90s. Uh, you know, some people had it figured out and it was all tribal knowledge within their companies. There were some packages, open source stuff that was coming out to make people's jobs easier, but the vast ecosystem of companies that were trying to get into it, were like, well, how do we replicate what this, this big company did that had all this success? And this is really confusing. I think we're in that spot right now. A lot of people are building tooling and, to make stuff like MLOps a little bit easier. And there's a lot of confusion around what is needed, what is not needed, what should be learning about and paying attention to. And it's a highly fluid situation right now with where the future of this this profession really is. But it's, it's an exciting time as well. And as standards start coming to be a part of how people do their, their jobs and the general knowledge and, and understanding that people have, you know, in applying these, these techniques to solve problems at companies, it's gonna, it's gonna make everything a lot more successful, stable and predictable. That's kind of my take on it. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. to unpack with like other topics about the future of, of ML in industry though. Yeah, definitely. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. It's, it's interesting just to see how much stuff is being invented, right? As people kind of figure out, okay, yeah, we've got this machine learning system. And it's funny because I've talked to a bunch of companies about their machine learning setup and they basically, I think you mentioned this before, it was the Kaggle effect is what you called it, but effectively they just go kind of pull a model off the shelf and use it until it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It's the focus that he has on just algorithms. And it makes sense. It, when people are trying to learn this, this field, where do you go? You go get an open source data set. You follow along with a guide that somebody wrote online. You look at some sample code. You try to reproduce it. And the focus on everything when people are learning and when companies are trying to uh, build these from scratch uh, for the first time, that's kind of where everybody's mindset is, is in that algorithm. If I train my model, then everything's going to work out well. And in reality, in, in a true production system where you're dealing with real world data, most of the stuff that you're doing is not working off of a clean, pre-curated data set. You're working with whatever data your company collects. And you have to craft the question to pose to the model in the form of correlation effects that, that the model is going to air quote learn from. And you have to do all that work, that feature engineer work. That's where most of the, the magic happens with ML. But then that's still just focused on the algorithm itself, like selecting the right algorithm, hyperparameter tuning, getting it so that you can 
get good loss performance metrics out of whatever you're doing. That's less, I'd say it's five to 10% of your work though. Feature engineering is a lot of work, but you have to think about stuff like ETL. How is that data getting into that model? Who's running that ETL? How stable is it? What sort of data validation checks are a part of that? What, what happens when that data feed goes down and you have a dependency on that? How are you getting data for inference when you're trying to do a prediction? What is that mechanism? What is that architecture? And then once you start serving, uh, how are you going to be serving? Are you doing batch predictions? Are you storing that somewhere? Is it going into a NoSQL engine? Is it going into an in-memory database? Or are you going into micro-batch predictions where you're running a streaming job and, and doing predictions? Or are you doing the more traditional bat, uh, like I already said batch, but uh, are you doing something that's a little bit more cutting edge, which is building a REST API? What does the infrastructure for that look like? How are you going to architect that? Or the most cutting edge, which is edge deployment, where you're building an artifact and you're making sure that you have a pipeline, you're deploying that to somebody's phone or it's embedding in an application. All, all of those considerations, that's where the challenge is with production ML is the ancillary around the algorithm. Yeah, that, that definitely feels like that's the, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it feels like that people talk about it a lot, but still not enough that it's, it's yeah, 95%. It's like a, a star athlete where 99% of the time is, is done doing training and uh, prep, preparation. And it's only, you, you only see the, 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 the game and the glorious play and everyone focuses on that, but it's all about a lot of, of, of work in the background. So it's like 90, 90% of your work is, is doing to, is, is to prepare the data and the workflow and everything you mentioned. And, but, you know, it's really the, the glorious part where you see a, a, a score, you know, you're, you're focused on that, that last part, which is where you get an actual number that says, oh, the algorithm's good or not good, but it's, all the work leading up to that, that might be the, the most important and time consuming or, you know. Man, yeah, it's, Francois, it's I'm going to steal funny. that analogy <laughs> going <laughs> forward. I actually see the role of the data scientist as the coach. So you're, you're prepping your athlete, like your, your star performer, your model, your baby, whatever. But the role of the data scientist, to, to answer what you were saying earlier, Charles, is about when it goes into production, what do you do then? you know, production release for ML, that's the start of its life cycle. And a lot of your other work that comes along is monitoring that. Like, how well is it performing? Am I solving the business need? Have I talked to the business and said, here's what we're planning on building. This is what it looks like. Are you okay with this? Is this a good solution? And then constantly looking at it, maybe daily, maybe an automated system is built that you have to monitor that in real time. Maybe it's something you check weekly and say, here's the report of how this is performing. And one bit of advice that I always give anybody, any data scientist who's trying to put something into production, I ask them, like, hey, has the business asked for some cadence of reporting on this? And if the answer is yes, then you better build something or you're, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. If the answer is no, then you should be like, very afraid about what you just built because nobody cares if it works or not. And that's dangerous. So it, yeah, build monitoring anyway, but you have to provide attribution to say, this is the value my job, my work, and my project is bringing to this company. And you have to push that narrative and say, don't be dishonest, but honestly providing, here's the, the results of this. And here's where we need to improve or change. You know, it's interesting though, that you're bringing this up because... Uh, I'm gonna, I'm going to back up just for a minute. So I've been training for a marathon. I, I actually came down sick like the day before the marathon I was supposed to run last. So I'm registering for another one now. But when you run the marathon, I mean, you you do all that training, right? And what's funny is, is that nobody gives you any credit for running the 22 or 24 miles the, the couple of weeks before the marathon in one go, right? It's the 26.2 where they put a chip on you and have you run down the road. That, that you get all the credit for. And it, yeah, I mean, the way you're talking about this, it just really kind of identified with that. You know, it's the same thing. I was a swimmer in high school and yeah, you're up at five 30 in the morning. You're, you're, you're back in the pool in the afternoon. And then effectively what happens is, is yeah, when it's time to perform for the marathon, it's just another run, right? For the swim, 
it's it's a couple of races, but it's not that different from what you're doing when you're training. And yeah, I think people discount a lot of that. The other thing that I wanted to throw out there though, and, and I hadn't really thought about this before, and you're pointing this out, Ben, is that for most of the programming that I do uh, in like web development stuff, whether or not it works is pretty clear, right? You know, something shows up on the page or it doesn't. But with the machine learning, it's like, yeah, do let's say it's a recommendation engine, right? So you're building net, Netflix 2.0 or whatever, right? And so, you know, you have your version of Netflix and you're putting the recommendation engine in. Well, how do you know it's working? Well, what's working if you get more lift of people clicking to watch another video or something, right? Yes. It's, it, yeah, you know, it's that kind of monitoring. And so you don't know if you have a right answer or the right answer or anything close to a right answer until you actually pull the trigger and deploy it and then see what changes. And that's that's the thing that really struck me with what you're saying there is just, yeah, it's it's not a cut and dried success. You walk through the tutorial and if you're getting the same result as the the people in the tutorial out of the same data set or something close, you know, you did okay. But then you go to the real world data and it's like, oh, you know, did we prune enough of the outliers to get a generalized enough case to give it or do the outliers matter? Or, you know, talking about the, the co- you know, the coaching and stuff like that, right? Am I giving it the right inputs? Am I telling it the right stuff so that I'm getting the right kind of output? And when I change things, how am I measuring and what am I measuring against? Anyway, it's just, it's really fascinating to me just to see how it all kind of rumbles yeah, and, through. And this rabbit hole goes very deep. It's a great example that you brought up with uh, Netflix, a lot of people in the ML community use that as a reference when they're talking about recommended recommendation systems. Nobody at Netflix exactly what they're doing, but most people have a general idea. And you can sort of reverse engineer how some of the, the carousels work when you think about it. And mm-hmm. you can even mess around with your own account and, and see like, hey, if I start doing these things, how, does, how do my recommendations change? Right. But let's say that Netflix starts pushing uh, new content that they're producing in sci-fi, they have a big push. Like, hey, we're releasing Witcher. We're releasing all this new content that's that's catering to this audience. The ML team has to start adapting to that because the content is changing and the user viewership is changing. What happens when people get tired of watching that? Or a new season comes out and the zeitgeist moves from that sci-fi fantasy into action movies. You know, people's tastes change over time. In order to get that shift in your recommender, you have to go back and do things. You have to do right. heuristics changing. You might have to not just retrain the model. The model for a recommender has to retrain all the time anyway, but you have to do stuff with that. So your code is changing continuously. But for monitoring a performance, if, if the business says, hey, data science team, like we really need to push this, this narrative in this recommender or this is very important to us to get visibility. Not only are they having to do that code change, but they have to do A-B testing. And that A-B testing, which is heavily borrowed from your field, uh, Charles, actually, it's when you do a a UI change, a UX change or something, that A-B test. Well, for ML, when you're talking about complex interactions with, with recommendations and how it might affect sales, you have to do statistical validation of that. And sometimes the that data that you're collecting is not Gaussian. Uh, I mean, it's not normally distributed. You could be having a Pareto distribution. You could have non-parametric tests that need to be run. So you need to know the statistics behind that about how to do those tests, what are appropriate tests in order to give you a p-value that can say, all right, at a 90% confidence, we believe that there is a lift here that is being shown. What is your power factor? How much data do you need to collect? How long do you need to run this test to be able to definitively say with 90% confidence, we know that B is better than our group A control and then present that to the business in a way that makes that narrative clear using the techniques that Francois knows about visualization and telling that narrative in the easiest way possible. Now, that's interesting because, yeah, you're talking about the uh, the production environment where it's about maintaining the model, but also making sure you have a good set of metrics 
to to track progress, right? So there's the model side, but also the tracking side needs to be to be monitored. Yeah, it, it's the the it's very interesting how you have a you build a system to, for example, the on the net Netflix example where you have a system that automatically recommends stuff, but at the same time you have to manually tweak the automatic recommendation, you know, to adapt. So it it's good to a point, I guess, the artists recognize when you do need to forcefully, you know, manually change, like you said, when there's let's say a marketing push for for that type of movie, or when you have to feel where you know when you, with your engine automatically adapt or when you need to change the the system itself right yeah and and a lot of people assume that some of these recommenders that are like netflix it's not just one model i promise you uh, they have a lot of a lot of things <laughs> running an obscene amount of, of data science work being done but when you look at checkout at say amazon and you see all these different panes of like hey things that are similar to this item or things that people looked at because they bought this thing or, hey, we think you would like this because you looked at this or you bought this. And all of those are powered by machine learning, but they're all different algorithms and they all have different rules associated with them. There's critical filtering that needs to be done when you're talking about if your company sells stuff that is that is age-restrictive, sensitive uh, sort of content, then the ML team has to go and filter that stuff for particular users. You need to do a lot of work after the modeling phase. And all of that is code that you have to maintain, change, troubleshoot, debug, and do testing on. And actually, what you just said about A-B testing, I had not you know, realized fully how important that is because yeah, in, in video games where I, I mostly work is really, you know, especially on the mobile side, you you constantly are doing A B testing to optimize the the monetization of titles. But in in the machine learning, I guess it's kind of related. But I don't hear that a whole lot in the in the ML discourse, at least uh, you know, in, at a, at a at, on the surface, where that feels like that could be very important. And that feels like a kind of a structural pain in the ass to incorporate <laughs> A B testing into production and that feels like something that people may want to put more thought into at least at the architectural level when they they start putting things into production saying okay how can we easily split using uh, doing ab or abc testing within you know and how do we split our population of of testing uh, not necessarily with you know people but you know just test cases and then making sure you get reports that that feels like a, i don't know if you've seen a lot of that in production but yeah, it feels like a valuable yet maybe under under uh, represented problem. Yeah, I mean everybody's the hype is so real right now with ML oh, that yeah. everybody is trying to just get to first base. They want to get something out there. They're struggling with that too. I mean, it's this is not simple stuff. So just getting to MVP production release is what everybody's myopically focused on who are just getting into ML and, and buying into the hype train. The companies that have been doing this for a while or that have ML as a core part of their business, they already have this figured out. The problem is, is there's so much work involved in building that that they're not going to share that with the world. Nobody's going to open source something that they spent two years building a framework on that has proper monitoring, cohort analysis, statistical testing, generation of A-B test groups for particular test cases using mixed effect uh, Bayesian models to it, estimate what mixed test conditions are. So if you're doing A, then B, C, B, D, C, F tests, and you're comparing, comparing like what are the impacts of these. Somebody, a company that, that has that grokked and figured out and built, that's pr- so proprietary to their company that if they're ever going to release something for the rest of the world to use, it's going to be so stripped down and unuseful that <laughs> nobody's going to be able to do anything with it because the magic is in the details. So uh, I have clients that I work with that have this figured out. It's super cool to see. I'm not going to talk about it, um, but yeah, you know, about their implementations, but I've seen some pretty sophisticated things. But the vast majority of people I interact with, they're, it's not even on their radar. They're not even thinking about it. They don't, you don't know what you don't know since they've never had to suffer through those questions from executives saying, hey, we we just sunk $850,000 into this project and we paid your team a million dollars over the last year and a half in salary. How's that model you've been working on working out for us? How much money has it it generated? 
it's costing us $30,000 a month to just run this thing. What's the ROI here? And if you're not prepared to answer that question, good luck. Uh, it's, it's going to be a very painful time for you. How do I know this? I've lived through it and lived through that, that pressure and stress of saying, I don't know what this is doing to the business. And then spending three months writing 10,000 lines of, of statistical processing code in order to answer the question definitively to the, to the level of specification that a CTO wanted. And then saying, hey, it's 11% lift and it, I'm estimating that we made $47 million from this. If wow, you have that, there you go. If you have that prepared up, up front, just it's in your back pocket and you're ready to say, hey, business, this is how much money we made. This is why I'm asking for a five additional headcount and to do these other three projects. Here's the evidence of how good this can be for the business. That's what makes ML more successful at a company. Uh, so if you're not even thinking of that, not even thinking about how do I communicate this to the business in the terms that they want to hear, which newsflash, spoiler alert, it's all about money. So it, regardless of what you're, what you're using a model for, if you're not translating that into money in some form of, or fashion, nobody's going to care at the executive level. So true. That is so true. I mean, occasionally they'll have some other initiative that's not money driven, but it's pretty rare. Yeah, I think that was a, I think that was a brilliant uh, way to, to, to really make that, make that crystal clear. That was, I think that was yep. very, very interesting. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, there's a lot here, right? It's okay. There are the bits about having a model that's not sort of a, a clean build off of sample data, but actually off your own data. And then there's the bit about, okay, now that we have a model, how do we actually put it in the right place so that we can use it properly? There's the, how do we measure it? There's how do we actually explain the value of it? So going back then to the what's coming in machine learning or what, what do we see coming next or becoming the big thing in machine learning? I think the things that make the splash in the news are the, hey, there's this new algorithm that cures a disease or something, right, is what I'm imagining. But at the end of the day, within the industry, it looks like a lot of this stuff is more operational or co communication, which is something we talked about last time, right, where, where we're getting into, okay, yeah, how do we actually make this useful and how do we communicate how useful it is? Yep. Yeah, and actually, I'm I'm actually a bit surprised of how it feels like from you know what what you were saying, Ben, that the the industry, the ML industry, is almost still in that that early dot com era. You know, when you could just do anything, say dot com will make a billion dollars, <laughs> and it didn't really matter. You just like web van, just do everything. It just like if you're there, you're good, and it feels. And then people kind of you know once the wave hits. It's like in virtual reality, you know, that the same thing, like there's this shiny new thing, everybody goes for it. And then it, it you know, it kind of, there's a crash ish and then things start getting more rational and you have an actual, you know, added business value uh, to, to the, the technology that, that happens with cooler minds, I guess. I thought that ML was, was a bit more mature. You were saying we're, there's, we're still in that, if not hype phase, or maybe still in the hype phase or, you know, or yeah. People are still having trouble getting get good business value out of it or being impressed by, you know, shiny things. I think that each organization is at different levels of, of that hype versus disillusionment versus actualization. Some companies, and it's not related to size of the company or how long they've been around based on my interactions. There are some extremely large Fortune 100 companies that I've worked with that they might, you might, they're not like a tech focused company, but they were very deliberate in how they hired people, who they brought on board, what sort of speciality that they had, and made sure that they had an engineering culture that could support successful ML. And they, they knock it out of the park. Like it's amazing to see. It's, it's like watching a grandmaster play chess. Like, wow, you, you know how to do this. But it, it's because they know how to do everything else with, whenever you're talking about engineering fundamentals. You also see companies in that same tier bracket that throw money at the problem and they, they hire people that are inexperienced. They're doing exactly what you guys have said, which is 
going to somebody's blog, copy pasting some code, and then just it's a prey and spray with their their own data. They're just trying to make it work and hacking their way through it, usually creating unmaintainable code, not having proper business practices about communication and presentation, and then not being able to deliver on the promises that everybody got so excited about. It's really a factor of when you when I see that in an industry, it's a factor of some sort of the imposter syndrome, but at a in an engineering organization where they see somebody who's in their line of business or in their industry being successful with this. We need to copy what they're doing. And they don't know, they haven't gone through the pain that that other company went through of messing up dozens, if not hundreds of times on the road to enlightenment of figuring out, oh, this is all the stuff that we need to do to make this successful. Sometimes people can talk to experts in industry. They can talk to a consultant like, hey, just break it down for us. Let us know exactly what we need to do here and we'll implement that. Usually it's process-based and not so much focused on technology or algorithms or anything like that. So the hype is still there for people that are unaware of how to do it because they haven't gone through the pain of it. And when I see people you know, just using all the same algorithm, if I, if I come into a client and I see everything that they're trying to do is using XGBoost, and you're just like, why are you using this model for everything? And they're like, well, it wins Kaggle competitions. It's like, okay, pump the brakes. Like, step back a minute and try to think about what problem you're trying to solve. This isn't a panacea for every problem. It's great for some problems, but it, it doesn't work for everything. Or people that are like, hey, we need to use TensorFlow or PyTorch because that's what Google and Facebook use. It's like, that's not a justification to solve this problem. By the way, what you're trying to solve, let me show you how to solve this in SQL. And you read it, an aggregation query that solves the problem better than the deep learning that they spent six months working on. Uh, that sort of wisdom in the face of the hype, that's the challenge. And that's what the future, I think, of ML is eventually going to be in the next, I don't know if I want to sound optimistic here, maybe five years, enough people will have gone through the pain and gone through the, the disillusionment phase to realize, hey, simplicity is important. We need standards on code quality and development practices, and we need to have better integration of data scientists within teams at companies so that we can solve problems. Because at the end of the day, ML, data science, all of that, when you distill it down to what it's actually for, it's applying scientific methods as engineers to solve problems. Doesn't matter what algorithm you use. Doesn't matter if you're using supervised learning at all. Certainly doesn't matter if you're using deep learning. It's just solving a problem. And that's what we're employed to do. Doesn't matter what tools we use, so long as it's maintainable and it works. Just drop the mic. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, boom. <laughs> that's it right there. I mean, that's a so, big focus of like the book that I'm, that I'm finishing up now, particularly in the, like, la the part three of it covers a lot of this, this information for, with examples. And right. it's... It's stuff that people ask me all the time. They're like, hey, this was super successful at company A that you worked with. How do we replicate that here? What tools did they use? And I always tell them, like, it's, it's not about the tools. It's not even about the platform. You can make things work with any toolkit that's out there and, and you can build it yourself if you need to. What makes something successful is process. It's about the people. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or... If you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Now you're talking DevOps. <laughs> yes. No, it, it's true, though, and I guess we're diving into MLOps is, is kind of the term that I've been hearing thrown around. One thing that I'm curious about, though, is... How do I put it? I mean, it seems like you've identified some of these problems out there, and I'm sure people have realized that they have those issues. But I guess the question I have is, are they focused on this as, a, as an industry, as a community, right? Or are we still focused on sort of the technical aspects without talking about these other operational and, and delivery and code quality aspects that are going to come back around to bite people? I'd say anybody who's been doing this in companies, who's been solving problems with ML and data science techniques, 
for a long enough time is all focused on the process and like, how do we do this correctly? How do we make sure that this is maintainable? How do I make sure that my pager duty alert isn't going off at 3 a.m. on a Saturday? Because uh, that sucks, troubleshooting ML in the middle of the night. <laughs> so it, there's a guy that I really want to get on the show, actually, Laszlo Sranger, who uh-huh. he and a couple other people in the, the ML ops community, we've been having discussions like this about, hey, what is actually important about development standards for ML? Should this be right. codified? It, we can't just take agile practices because that doesn't apply directly to ML. How should people be thinking about how to make sustainable projects that are not just pushing for production and then, okay, everybody share the, you know, like, let's tap the keg and share some beers because we, we just solved this. Yeah. High fives all around. That's not <laughs> how it works. Uh, if you go to it, go through it from that, that mindset, you, your life is going to be rough over the next six months to a year. So it, having those discussions in the community and thinking about what are the standards and what should they be and what will work. I think it's evolving. And some people are having those discussions because we realize that so many people are struggling with the same things that we screwed up for years. And we had to learn it the hard way. How do we produce documentation? How do we all collectively write books and provide blogs that are super useful to newcomers to start this discussion? And I think that's going to be the biggest evolving aspect of ML over the next five years. Yeah, Kaggle needs to run a six-month competition with an ongoing about updating an ongoing model or something. Or <laughs> that would be fascinating, actually. That would be really interesting. Yeah, because it would force people to really think through. Okay, yeah, what am I doing with this? Right, and, and get people past the initial. Hey, you know, I I pulled this stuff together, and now it recognizes faces on on pictures to, yeah, I've had to train it against my own data. I've had to train it against stuff that's kind of messy, right? Yeah. I've had a simulator for that. Some of these issues, right? And so, yeah, now what? Yeah, simulator for something like that. You have an image classifier that's trained on human faces. What if that data set is an actual feed and then the system starts, starts passing in pictures of dogs? Your image classifier is not trained on that. So what do you do? Well, that's real-world ML. Not exactly in that that example. Hopefully, people aren't building that. <laughs> but that's what happens with your data. You get a, a feature drift. You get a concept drift. You get a global pandemic that changes all of your feature data and your model completely falls apart. How do you recover from that? Well, if your code sucks and it's unmaintainable, you can't figure out what you wrote three months ago, how are you going to fix it? Do you, do you refactor the entire project from scratch? Do you just cancel it and say, hey, we, we actually can't fix this? Weren't so, there actually, like in the, in the early pandemic, like they had trouble with uh, supplying uh, toilet paper and all these algorithms for supplying things, just saw a huge spike and didn't know how to handle it. Or I thought I read something about it. I thought it was kind of funny, a good example of just <laughs> the data yeah. completely changing overnight for no reason you couldn't foresee. Yeah, a lot of our global logistics supply chain is based in ML algorithms. Uh, they're usually statistical models. So ARIMA, for instance, or people using deep learning LSTMs to forecast what demand is going to be. Well, when you have to manufacture something and you're, you're targeting a demand that's going to be you know, one month out, two months out, three months out, if you're talking about something that requires a production process that takes three months to spin up and they're shutting down machines for cost in order to make more profit. If you have a black swan event, which is something that nobody can predict, like a pandemic, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden demand jumps up way past where your model could ever have foreseen and your model isn't even aware of the future of something like that happening, it takes months to reset your tool chain, to get your supply chain. If we're talking about toilet paper, Somebody's got to go cut down some trees and make some wood pulp down to Brazil in order for them to put it on a cargo container ship in one of their ports to take it up to North America to manufacture that toilet paper. Well, those machines, that entire factory line in North America has to turn on. People have to do maintenance on those before they can turn them on. It takes months to get all that. And that's why we had all these shortages. 
People went crazy, bought up stuff way out of proportion with what the forecasts had said. So that happens in ML all the time. Not black swan events. That that's pretty rare. But features drift. They they constantly drift. Your customer base changes. So the more process you have, the more standard and I'll use the term ML ops, the more of these tools and processes that you have in place, the easier it's going to be to adapt to those changes and make sure that your model is consistently providing good value to a business. It's job security, right? Keeps you employed, keeps your team successful, makes your company successful. Really, really interesting. All the painful and fun things that you learn when you mess this up dozens of times in your career like I have. Well, it's it's fascinating to me too, just the, how do I say it? You know, yeah, just adapting, like people adapting to the world and then your algorithm adapting to the people or even the implication that you made on kind of the Netflix example where you've recommended everything to them that they've already seen, right? So now what, you know? And so you have to adapt to the fact that people have been using the engine, right? So you're adapting to them, adapting to the engine, adapting to them. That's the other form of of drift, actually, <laughs> is feedback drift, which is yeah. you're introducing changes by the fact that you're you're actively interacting and modifying reality with your model. How does that pollute your features coming in for retraining? Do you do filtering? Do you have to do some data augmentation to handle that? Do you need to change your modeling approach? All of this yeah. stuff is things that you only learn once you've had to maintain a model in production that is actually important to a business. Then you have to get creative and play jazz. And there's no blog that's going to cover that. Uh, it's just hearing it from from people that have had to do it before. Yep. So interesting. Yeah, feedback drift. I hadn't given much thought to, but yeah, that's that sounds like I want to sit. I need to sit down. <laughs> like, like the, the model is changing itself. It's just like, oh, yeah, that's that's very very good one. Well, you think about one of the most common things that a marketing group will do at a company for ML is churn prediction. And mm-hmm. you want to identify people that are your customers that maybe they haven't interacted with you in the last three weeks. You don't know why. You could try to send them spam email and annoy them or it'll never get to them. You could give them coupons, whatever it is. There's some action that you'll take. If they're a whale for your company and you want to bring them back into the fold, somebody's going to interact with them and say, hey, here's some free stuff or hey, here's some some things that you might like. Well, that churn prediction that had a, a probability of 99.8% that this, this customer has churned, when you take action, they're no longer churned if they come back. So what do you do when you retrain your model? That data is still there. Now you all of a sudden realize that, oh, I need an additional feature in my model to say, did human at my company interact with human that is customer? Mm -hmm. So that the model can learn that and realize, okay, there is a correlation that exists here at this temporal effect right after, you know, this, these events happened, this modified the behavior. But if you don't do that, your model starts falling apart. It'll start predicting churn in the wrong areas. So (laughs) that feedback gets really complicated. Yeah, that's a great example of it. That's really really yeah that would that makes a lot of sense so i i guess the the place that i'm trying to get to with all of this right you know whether we're talking about hey what's coming in uh machine learning or what where the gaps i guess is is something we're talking about here right what do i do right if if i'm a machine learning practitioner of some kind and i'm out there doing my thing what is actionable out of this like what what should i be thinking about or working on or putting in place now to make my system more robust or more uh, future-proof or whatever? My best advice for anybody asking that who's working in this profession and is wondering, what, what should I do, is stop thinking like a PhD researcher. Stop insulating yourself from the outside world and thinking that you can figure it all out on your own. You are smart. If you're going through a PhD program and you now are minted as a data scientist at a company, you've earned your spurs. However, a village helps build a good model. Join one of the communities. There are some great communities out there for ML. Data Talks Club, MLOps community, 
join those and you get to talk to people such as myself who have done this stuff and work with lots of different companies, we're there to help. You have questions like, hey, uh, and there's, there's too many questions to even put into a single book. I was told by my publisher, stop writing so much. And I was covering maybe 15% of what I wanted to write about in that book. And they're like, if you do all of this, this is going to be a 7,000 page book. I'm like, yeah, I know. There's a lot in this. Uh, and I don't even know 10% of ML. So it's, it's too much. So whatever problems you're facing and whatever needs you have, or you just want to rubber duck, ask somebody some questions. Like, hey, what are your thoughts on this? Talk to an expert. We're here to help. Everybody in these communities is super open. We like gregarious. We want to see people succeed. So come into those those communities and just ask questions in Slack. Get on the the Discord servers in in some of these groups. The one for this community. See if you can, you know, ask people questions. Like, hey, how do I do this? They'll answer. They'll be like, hey, here's your four options here. Here's the the positives and negatives of each. And if you want to share me some code, send it over. I'll, I'll give you I'll give you some feedback and pointers on it because there's just too much to learn. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And it feels like to maybe approach problems with a more holistic mindset, holistic and defensive mindset as far as watching for what could happen in production, making sure more attention to the data coming in and how it could evolve and having a good workflow or pipeline to for system modification, A-B testing, that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. From a tooling and engineering standpoint, pick a platform that you don't have to maintain. You don't want to be rolling your own. That, that's just wasted effort. Pay somebody to do that for you. From a, a technology, from a, a language perspective, pick something that everybody understands. From a coding perspective, use good architectural practices for engineering development and make sure that you're writing code in a way that everybody on the team can maintain. And my litmus, litmus test for that for everybody and when I, I go into a client the first time and I look at, I'm like, hey, share me some of your code. I ask them to do something a lot of times. I say, hey, all your code comments that you have throughout your code, can you just remove them and then explain your code live to me on a, a screen share? <laughs> but I don't, wanna, I don't want you to explain your code. I want you to explain a project that one of your peers wrote. And I want to see if you can explain it to me live. And if they can, that's yeah. good code architecture. It's simplicity and design. If, they're, if they start panicking, that's dangerous because they should be on rotation maintaining all of the production uh -huh. deployed code. If they can't figure out how that thing works without a whole bunch of walls of, of text and comments within code, then your code is poorly written and that's dangerous. So it, there's a bunch of gotchas in there. And then some of the other tooling, with, like what you said, Francois, like monitoring for testing, A-B testing, and just making sure that you're checking for drift, you should have something in place to be watching for that stuff. And the devil's in the details with those as well. So yeah, reach out to an expert and they'll probably give you some pretty good guidance on what to think about. Good stuff. Well, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. Is there anything else we want to make sure we call out as part of this discussion? Uh, none from my side. I'm good. All right, good deal. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. And then we'll uh, wrap this up and be back next week. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Francois, do you want to start us off with picks this week? Sure. It's another workflow-ish kind of tool. Is I've seen more and more companies I interact with tell me they use Discord. The it's a it's a kind of it's a it's a gaming originally a gaming oriented chat platform. 
where you can uh, create servers, have rooms, and it's more and more people tell me to use this as opposed to Slack and or Skype and that kind of thing. It's uh, you have chat rooms, you can have, you can, it, it's, it's, they use it. Some of them use it as a almost like a, a virtual room with uh, with everybody being out for uh, you know working from home. They found it really useful where you have and create rooms. They everybody logs in as if they were walking into the office and they they check into a room. There's private rooms, public ones, and it's like a very it's, it's very efficient version of let's say a Zoom. It's a Zoom on steroids. It's Zoom slash Slack together that you can use it. Like I said, it's used for for gaming uh, originally, so you could play with your friends. But it's grown to be much more than that. I've seen it used more and more in uh, work from home uh, setup at, at companies, and they say there's really good screen sharing, high frame rate. You can uh, you know be a, a ton of people. Let's say in a, you know, like they call it the, the cafeteria, and then there's a library. You know, companies split things, and everybody have their private meeting rooms when you want to talk to somebody. But that's the way some companies use to maintain a, a virtual presence, right? As everybody just turn on your camera and you just want to see if, as if you were at your desk and then you just mute. And if you want to talk to someone, you can ping them privately and that kind of thing. And it's, it's interesting. I, I haven't used it myself, but it's definitely catching uh, gathering steam as far as, as uh, more and more companies I, I see using it. And they, they seem to like it much better than just Slack, a separate Skype, because it's kind of this unified place where you can chat, have virtual presence and video conference and screen sharing uh, with good performance. Anyway, that's just something to look into if you're, uh, we can uh, look into that as a potential option if uh, if you need that, that kind of thing. Yeah, we use Discord for devchat.tv. We got channels for all the different shows. It's pretty handy for, for communicating. A lot of times if if there's a problem, that's, that's where I hear about it is in our uh, DevChat's Discord. And yeah, there are a lot of things that I like about it that I like better than, um, than Stripe, or not Stripe, uh, Slack. So... Oh, yeah. wow. Awesome. I'm a fan. <laughs> there you go. All right. Ben, what are your picks? Oh, I've got a, a toolkit that Ooh. some of the, the listeners may be familiar with, but some might not. One of the most painful things that you can do, particularly if you've been doing ML for a long enough time, you hate tuning your models. It's time consuming. It's boring. And it, it just eats up a lot of your life. Uh, when you're getting ready to do all that testing. So built on the shoulders of of tools like Hyperopt, which is an automated hyperparameter tuning framework, the past two weeks I've been playing around a lot more heavily with Optuna, their open source package uh, for Python hyperparameter tuning. Really slick API, an improvement on the tree of parsing estimator algorithm for determining what uh, the optimized conditions should be. And I've been putting it through its paces with a number of open source data sets and a number of different algorithms. And I'm very impressed with it. So I highly encourage you to check it out. Check out their GitHub page. It's on PyPy and on on Conda for you to uh, do a Conda Forge install. So Optuna is the package. Oh, nice. Yeah, make sure we get links to this stuff in the chat so we can get it in the show notes. I'm going to throw out a couple of picks of my own. One thing that I've been playing with lately is and you guys can tell me if I picked this yesterday because I don't remember what I picked yesterday, is the DigitalOcean app platform. So I've been working on kind of a semi-stealth project. And anyway, I, I just deployed my stuff on their app platform, which is platform as a service. So I don't have to do any of the DevOps stuff like setting up the server and then making sure it has all the updates and worrying about the security and crap like that. You know, they, they've got it all figured out. So it just deploys my app. My app's a Ruby on Rails app, and I literally just said, here's my Rails app, right, with nothing else. And it said, oh, okay, I know what to do with this. And it just ran. And so I've been pretty happy with it. You can also hook it up to their database, their hosted database system. And so, again, I don't have to maintain a server with Postgres on it, or the queuing system uses Redis. I don't have to host Redis either. And it's, anyway, it's been pretty, pretty nice. So I'm going to shout out about that because it's awesome. And then I've been listening to another book. And I think I mentioned this yet uh, when we recorded yesterday, but I finished Psycho-Cybernetics. I've been listening to, what's it called? It's it's a Napoleon Hill book, Outwitting the Devil. And anyway, it's it's been really interesting just to kind of sit down and, and listen to it. Basically, 
the setup, he, you know, he talks about some of his experience and then he gets pretty quickly into this interview with the devil that he has, right? And it talks about how, how the, when, whether you're religious or not, there are a lot of ideas within the book that are pretty interesting, just how we get discouraged and how we get kind of gloss over some of our shortcomings and how we react out of fear or hate or worry or things like that. I mean, in, in this sense, you know, it's a conversation with the devil. So the devil's saying, I get people with these things. But like I said, whether or not you believe that there is a devil, at the end of the day, these are things that do motivate people to sometimes do some pretty scary stuff. And it's it's really interesting just to kind of look at it from the standpoint. I'm religious, and so I, I think it's interesting from that standpoint. But even if you're not, just the standpoint of, okay, you know, what are these negative forces in the world that cause people to act or react in specific ways? And anyway, so it's it's been making me think, which is always a good sign. Or maybe it's a bad sign, depending on how you look at it. But uh, anyway, uh, I, I've, I've been enjoying it. So yeah, Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill. Were you going to say something, Ben? Yeah, the the funny backstory about that book, it was originally written in 1938. Yeah. And the the wife of the author prevented him from publishing it until like long after he died in 1970. Yeah. It was published in t- 2011 after editing yeah. by his uh, foundation. That's fascinating. Definitely yeah, give that a read. Yeah, she prevented it. And then I think the family prevented it. And eventually, yeah. It, it got to the point where it was the foundation that got the distribution rights on it. So yeah, somebody named Sharon. Lecter. Uh, what's her name? Yeah. yeah she, so she went in and she kind of added notes and, ed, and edited the book, right? So it's like, hey, here he's referring to this or hey, here she, he's referring to this. He's quoting from this other work. Here's something to think about while you're reading this chapter. And, and her commentary is really, really good. And so, but yeah. Eventually, it was passed down and people basically had, don't publish this until I'm dead. And so anyway, enough of the right people had, you know, moved on from this life. And so it it fell into the hands of the foundation and they published it. But it's a terrific book. And then I just want to remind people to go check out Dev Influencers Podcast. You can find that at devchat.tv. And I guess there we'll uh, wrap up. And until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.